If you want to learn how to hear God's voice, you need to learn how to recognize when someone is truly a false prophet or a false teacher, or when someone gives you a false word in God's name. And one of the greatest false prophets in history and in the Bible is a man named Balaam or Balaam. See, Balaam reveals some insightful truths about how God speaks to people. His tragic story also reveals some incredible insight into what a false prophet truly is. So the question becomes, why did God use this false prophet? Why did God choose to speak through him? And what is the real reason that God allows false prophets and false teachers to exist within church communities. That's what we'll be talking about in today's message. As we're talking about this series, Hearing God's Voice, this is episode eight, I'm going to reiterate what I've said in every episode, which is if you want to hear God's voice throughout your life, first you need to know God's voice, which means become familiar, spend time, invest into your relationship with God. Then you, as you hear God's voice, you will recognize his voice. There will be that initial sense of, I think God's speaking. Then you'll discern through that to definitively uh, ascertain that God is indeed speaking to you. Then you'll receive and be receptive to what God is saying. And then you will act upon and listen to what God is calling you to do. So it's knowing God's voice, hearing his voice, recognizing his voice. Then you discern, you're receptive, and you listen, you act on what it is the Lord is saying. Let's go to Numbers 22. Balaam, for me. And I think, I, I glean this from Scripture. I don't just conclude this on my own, but based on what the Scripture teaches, it seems as though... Balaam, Balaam, is one of is the ultimate poster boy for what a false prophet really is. And I'm going to read this story. It's, it's quite lengthy. So if you're like, get to the points, get to the application, it is all going to be built on you understanding the story. Because there is, there's so many questions I still have about this narrative that I don't know if I'll ever have answered in this life, to be honest. There's a lot of mystery behind what God is doing here not just in Moab, not just with Balaam, but with the nation of Israel at this point in human history, as they're at the, I don't think they're at the base of Mount Sinai anymore. They've kind of uh, moved forward and they are camped in the plains of Moab. Okay. So contextually, we have Israel in the plains of Moab, they're camped there and Moab and the king of Moab, they're freaking out. Okay. That's the context. So we have Numbers 22 verse 2. It says, Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. They've seen what this nation is capable of doing. They've seen what God can do through this nation and their army. They've seen people fall, the enemies of God and this nation fall, and Balak is terrified. The nation of Moab, they're all together pooping their pants. Verse 3 says, Moab was in great dread of the people, see, because they were many. Moab was overcome with fear of the people of Israel. So you're getting a flavor for how Moab and Balak are responding to what they know about Israel. They took down Egypt. They took down the Amorites. Are we next? Probably. What do we do? So notice the repetition of letting you know fear is what, and dread, and they're terrified, okay? Verse four, Moab said to the elders of Midian, you know, this horde will now lick up all that's around us. They're gonna take over and take everything we have just as the ox licks up the grass of the field. And so Balak, the son of Zippor, who was the king of Moab, hang on to that name. Sometimes you get confused between Balak and Balaam. Balak is the son of Zippor being the king of Moab. Balaam is the prophet that God will use who ends up becoming a false prophet in the end, which is very odd. And some would say he's an example of someone who loses their salvation. There's no hint of that language, um, even subtly throughout this story. So verse 5 says, um, Balak sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor at Pithor, which is near the river in the land of the people of Amah, 
to call him. In other words, Balak is calling Balaam. This is a frequent thing that takes place when they need advice, counsel, direction, insight. They'll, they'll pay for the services of Balaam, this seer, this diviner, this prophet. And he calls to Balaam and goes, hey, here's my message. There's a people that's come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the earth and they're dwelling opposite of me. Come now. Would you curse this people for me? Which means Balaam has a reputation of being able to curse or bless whoever he chooses to do so or whoever the Lord leads him to do so. Um, And so Balak understands how the services works, how this transaction takes place. I pay you money. You curse the people I want you to. And we're good. Okay, so. He goes, perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land. I know that whoever you bless is blessed. Whoever you curse is cursed. So guess what? Up to this, this is not the first time we see this happening. Balaam has a reputation, his services and his, um, his ability to curse and bless. It's known in that land. It's, he's done this frequently, at least once before. And uh, the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the fees for divination. You're supposed to think pagan sorcery, witchcraft, divination taking place. That's what what Balaam is is known to be. He's a diviner. He's a seer. He uses these these different, I don't know, I guess, omens and means in which he can have spiritual insight and have information and knowledge that comes from the spiritual realm. And, and what's interesting and, and confusing about this story is that God seems to be working even within those things, which if you have a category for it, God says explicitly not to engage in these things. Absolutely. That is a category we should work from and know that all of this is, is wrong. It is explicitly against the nature and character and word of God. And yet there seems to be at this point in human history before that becomes a known rule, an established fact that God is against these things. We, we see hints of this, that God is still, I guess, within his sovereign grace, allowing um, to be a part of what he's doing in the world. Again, just kind of blows a few categories out of the water that you may have. And they came to Balaam and they gave him Balak's message. Here's what Balaam says. He says, Lodge here tonight. I'll bring back word to you as the Lord speaks to me. So guess what? He will only say what the Lord speaks to him. So this is why Balak can say, Balaam, anytime you bless someone, they're blessed. Anytime you curse someone, they're cursed. It's not because Balaam is on his own deciding whether someone is blessed or cursed. He is looking to God to give him the permission to either bless or curse. So there's something about Balaam's, I wouldn't call it ministry, but his services that he provides that seems to have God involved in it. And he's saying he is working with and speaking to the true God of creation, this being the God of Israel at this time. So it's not like there's some false spiritual being that is is masquerading as the God of Israel. This is actually the Lord speaking to Balaam through these means. And it's very odd. So the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam and and God came to Balaam and said, "Who, who are these men with you? So guess what? God is legitimately speaking to Balaam and he says, who are these men with you? Sounds a lot like the questions we see throughout Genesis. Adam and Eve. Adam, where are you? Cain, where's your brother? God knows the answers to these questions, but he asks anyway. And Balaam said to God, you know, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent to me. 
there's a, there, I guess there's a people that have come out of Egypt. They have a reputation. There's a lot of them. They cover the face of the earth. And uh, so he's paying me to come and curse them. So God cursed them for me. So interestingly enough, uh, or rather, sorry, this is Balak telling Balaam, curse them for me. And Balaam's delivering that message to God. So I'm going to retract that. God said to Balaam, you shall not go with them. Do not go with them. What is God's response to what Balaam is really asking permission to go and do? God says, no, it's a strong no. You shall not curse the people. They are blessed. What you're going to see is Balaam's going to try and finagle his way around this. But I mean, I know they are blessed, but can't you change that? And what we're going to see is there's a love for money, a love for status, a love for influence and fame and reputation that is going to, Balaam's going to allow all of that to influence what he chooses to do with the legitimate word of the Lord here. We have this category in mind where it says, that says a false prophet or false teacher is someone who does not ever uh, have any interaction with or hear legitimately from God. What's interesting about Balaam is in First Peter and, and Jude, we're going to see he is he's communicated as a false prophet. And yet this false prophet is truly hearing from God through pagan means. What do you do with that? I'm not saying there's application for us. I'm not saying there's something being prescribed for us in this passage. What I am saying is that I, the presuppositions we have about false prophets and false teachers, some of them do go out the window when we look at the story of Balaam. Now, now you go, well, this is the exception, not the normative. Absolutely. I'm not saying this is normative, but I am saying it happened. So even though it is an exception, we can't say God will never because he did in this story. We can't say false prophets will never because Balaam does in this story. So Balaam rose in the morning, Balaam, he rose in the morning and said to the princes of Balak, go to your own land. The Lord has refused to let me go with you. So guess what? Balaam here is being obedient. Eh, half obedient. He's half cheeking it. So the princes of Moab rose and went to Balak and said, Balaam wouldn't come with us. I guess God wouldn't let him or something. And Balak sent princes more in number and more honorable than these. In other words, he's really trying to get the attention of Balaam. Come. In fact, let me send more people with more influence and more status. And hopefully we can even guilt trip and pressure him into coming. And they came to Balaam and said, look, Balak, the son of Zippor, uh, this is what he says. So Balaam, please listen. Please let nothing hinder you from coming to me. I'll, I'll do you great honor. I'll do you great honor. What are they appealing to? They're appealing to Balaam's desire for honor and status that they know is there. Otherwise, Balaam would not be offering his services as he has in the past. There seems to be a track record Balaam has, and there seems to be an indication within his services that Balaam's really interested in money and honor. Whatever you say to me, I'll do. Come, curse this people for me. Do what I want rather than what God told you to, to do. Okay, you see this Genesis 3, uh, you know, the narrative that gets repeated all throughout the scriptures, that narrative that's, hey, I know God said, but you should. I know God said, but you should do what I want. That's the, these are the two options Balaam has presented. You can do what God says, or you can do what Balak is, Balak is really wanting you to do. So Balaam answered and said to the servants, look, even though the king were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I couldn't go beyond the command of God. I can't. Now it doesn't say that Balaam doesn't want to. That's what's fascinating about this narrative, and we'll have insight throughout the rest of Scripture into what's really taking place here, I think. Balaam is just saying, I can't. 
It doesn't say he doesn't want to or he's really wanting obey to obey God. It's just that God only blesses who he wants and curses who he wants. I can't manipulate the hand of God. I don't decide whether God blesses or curses someone. But it doesn't say that Balaam doesn't want to. It just says, I can't go beyond the command of God. It's not possible. I'm not that powerful. That's what seems to be taking place. Rather than some would read this and go, no, Balaam's conscience, his love for God, his dedication, his fear of God won't allow him. He says, I'm loyal to God. That's not what we'll see in the text. We don't see a man that's loyal to God. We see a man that uses God for his own selfish purposes. So he says, you two stay here for the night that I may know what more the Lord will say to me. Do you see what's happening here? In the mind of Balaam, and this is there's application for us in this. When God tells you a yes or no, and you're still kind of hanging around, trying to think of ways to maybe change God's yes to a no, or change God's no to a yes, and, and you keep pressing him and pressing him, it sounds like what Moses was told. God says, Moses, you're not going to see the promised land. And we have this, this incident where Moses goes, can I please? And God goes, I've already said no, don't bring it up anymore. But Moses still tries to bring it up. So rather than Balaam settling on, God said, no, guys, there's no changing his mind. I'm not going to try and finagle my way out of this and get God to, no, he said no. Instead of saying that, what Balaam does is he goes, you know what, let me check again. In other words, as they're presenting their reasons, Balaam, please just ask God again. They're going, here's honor, here's influence. Balaam's going, oh, you know what, let me check again. He shouldn't have to check again. He already got a stern, clear, no, don't go with them. And if that is not enough, then what's happening here is we see Balaam allowing his desire for, you're going to see money and fame and honor. He's allowing those and those desires to influence how he handles what God has said. Now, I think what we have here is very different than what we see in the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus. Because you might be tempted to say, well, Jesus did the same thing. God said, no, I will not take this cup from you. And yet Jesus went back a second time. And Jesus went back a third time. That is very different because we see Jesus surrendered to the will of the Father. We see Jesus surrendering his own human preference to the will of the Father. And saying, I want A, but if you want B, then I want B more than I want A. Because you want it, Father. So your will be done, not mine. That is not the heart of Balaam. What we see in Balaam is this desire to change God's decision so Balaam can get more out of this. Very different from Jesus, so don't even dare make that comparison. So God came to Balaam at night and said, Look, if the men have come to call you, rise, go with them, but only do what I tell you. Now, there are a number of ways to make sense of this, as we'll see. Verse 21, So Balaam rose in the morning and saddled his donkey and went with the princes of Moab. There seems to be a condition in verse 20. I want to present to you a couple ways to think through this, okay? You might not have known about Balaam until this message, uh, but you're going to his name's going to be throughout your head the rest of the week. You're going to be thinking about him more than you want to because I think we should be reflecting on this. We should be thinking through, am I like Balaam in that sense? Where I know what God's answer is, 
but I'm not okay with it. So I try and change his mind because I want what I want and I don't want what God wants. Is there any of that in my heart where I know God said, no, it's not time to get into a relationship, but I'm still putting myself out there. I'm single in parentheses, not wanting to be. I'm still on Tinder. I'm still on all these different apps that allow me. I'm just putting myself out there to see if I'm just playing the field, Lord. I know you said no. You know, are we okay with God saying no? And we're like, okay, I will live in accordance with your no. Some of you aren't okay with God's no in this season. God, can I take this job? It's been a very clear no. And you're going, but that would double my income. I could do a lot with that money. Hey, charities, organizations that need the finances, they're world countries, Lord. And he's going, no. And you're still trying to reason through and justify almost acting on going forward with it like God said yes when he said no. So just be thinking through. This is not just about Balaam. There's a lot of, I guess, ways in which I resonate with him. And you should too. You should sense that and go, man, I feel that tension sometimes. Where God said something and I'm still going, mm, but could you? And God's going, don't bring it up anymore. But you're so obsessed with gain and personal profit, which I guess inherently in and of itself is not bad, but at the expense of obedience and honoring God, it becomes bad. I'm, I'm not against you, you gaining and profiting in this life. According to the will of God, though, that's what matters. And how you define that matters too. So look at the condition in verse 20. God says, look, you can go with them if they've come to call you. If the men have come to call you, rise. Now, what's interesting, I don't know how the Hebrews rendered, okay? So I don't know what's actually, go- if there's any deeper sense or deeper message to what's being relayed here. But I do believe there's a condition. If the men have come to call you, go. Then we see verse 21, Balaam rose in the morning and saddles his donkey. There's no sense in which the men actually come and call him again. And you go, God is not saying if they come and call you in the morning, then you can go, you might say. God's going, if the men have come to call you, which they have, then go with them and do what I say. So God is allowing for some flexibility within his no. It went from a no to a fine, but only do what I tell you to do. That's, that's another way of reading this. And I'm not, not, I'm not necessarily sure where I stand with this, to be honest, because I don't think it's clear enough for us to go. Is God allowing some flexibility in this for Balaam to go and God's still going to work within that, but it's not the ideal, but God's allowed it? Or has God given Balaam a condition in the morning? If the men have come to call you, then go with them. If they don't, then don't. And then Balaam presumptuously goes forward before the men even call him, and that's disobedience. There are two ways to look at this. And maybe there's a third way I've not yet considered, but I just want to present those two views to you so you're not like, oh, it's that one. No, it's either. I think either are very possible, okay? So God's anger is kindled because he went, that's why I'm convinced that in verse 20 we see a condition Balaam, you can go with them if they come to call you. They don't come to call him. Balaam presumptuously saddles his donkey and goes anyway. He's already decided to go. In other words, here's, here's where we insert ourselves without getting too weird. Here's where we draw out application for our own life. Balaam, what he does, he's not asking for God's will. He's asking for God's permission. I want you to think about that for one second. 
You go, what's the difference? When I ask for God's will, what I'm saying is I have a preference for my life, for my finances, for the marriage that I'm in, for the kids that I'm going to have, for the place I'm going to live, for what I'm going to do in church ministry. I have a preference for my health and the diagnosis I just received. I have a preference. But Lord, I want to know your will so I can do that. Whether it's the same as my preference or different, I want your will. That is very different than saying, God, do what I want. Give me permission to do what I've already decided to do. And I don't care what you want. I don't care what your ideal is. I don't care what honors you. I've already decided that's good. And I want you to co-sign that. I want you to give me permission to go forward and whatever. I'm not looking for your will. I'm just looking for you to make something happen. And if you don't, I have a problem with you. There's a difference between asking for God's will and asking for his permission. Now you go, well, at times, can't we ask for God's permission when we ask for his will? I think there's a, there's a healthy way to balance this where I go, Lord, I have an opportunity on my plate. Am I supposed to move forward in this? I feel like I should. So in some sense, I'm asking for permission. Can I? But if it's a no... I'm not going to move forward anyway. I'm going to settle on what you've said. When you ask for permission, you're not, I'll say it like this. Usually when we ask God for permission, we don't intend to obey the no as much as we obey his yes. As much as we're wanting to obey the yes, we're ready to go forward. Just come on, God, give me the okay. Approve it. Sign it off. Let me get into this marriage. Let me get in this relationship. Let me move forward with this career. Let me go to that school. Give me a way in. But we're not okay with the no. We're not as excited to stay as we are for God to give us permission to move forward. Now, I think what we have in verse 22 is clear contextual evidence that God did not want Balaam to go still. God didn't allow for some flexibility and allow leeway. He still settled on a no. Otherwise, why would God be mad that Balaam did what God allowed for? Why are you getting mad at me, God? You allowed me to do this. You made some leeway in your plan for me to go forward with this. Why are you mad at me? So that ha- for me, that has to be an indication that Balaam is walking in strong disobedience and rebellion or presumption. But no matter what, we do not see a concern for God's will. We, ke- we see a concern for God making something happen for Balaam. God, do it. Make away, curse him. I want money. And you go, there's no hint of that yet. You'll see. God's anger was kindled because he went, and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as his adversary. Is God in line and in league with what Balaam's doing? Or is God opposed to what Balaam's doing? It says, because he went, God is angry. So the angel of the Lord stands as an adversary. That doesn't seem to be that God is okay with what Balaam's doing. I'm not, it's not the ideal, but it is what it is, buddy. Go ahead. This is God is opposed to it. Now, he was riding on the donkey. This is going to be a huge part of the story. Because what ends up being tragically ironic is that the real donkey is the one that has to be corrected by the donkey. And his two servants were with him. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. First of all, what the heck? Is this sounding a a bit like Genesis 3? 
We have a serpent that talks, if you render that to be an actual snake in the garden. We have a donkey that can perceive spiritual things. Are we supposed to take this and then say all animals have spiritual insight into the heavenly realms? I don't think that's a proper application, and that's not prescribing that to be so. Rather, this might be, um, I'll say this might be um, one of those, I don't know, random moments where this takes place. Meaning it's not the normative, it's the exception. The donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. And the donkey turned aside out of the road and went into the field. Why is it that Balaam doesn't see what the donkey sees? That's the contrast you need to you need to really track within the story. Is we're going to see a donkey is more spiritually perceptive. A donkey is more insightful. Donkey is more obedient. A donkey is more careful. And even more in tune with like the will of God than Balaam is. Okay? That's, that's the contrast going on that you need to pay attention to. Uh, Balaam struck the donkey to turn her into the road. So we see this continual persistence, persistent rebellion on the part of Balaam. The donkey is trying to protect Balaam from going forward because the donkey even knows, Balaam, you're an idiot. If you're going forward, you're not taking we, we, me with you. Sorry, you're going, you're going down without me. And Balaam goes, what are you doing, you dummy? Move forward. Balaam is, he has his eyes set on the worldly gain that's on the other side of this. He's not aware of God's presence. He's not concerned with obedience. He's not concerned with the will of the Father. He knows God said, but I'm going to try and work my way out of that to get what I want. He finds a kind of way around it. The donkey's aware of the fact that God's not in this. Turn around. And Balaam goes, move forward. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards. And so, I want you to see, first, we see uh, the angel of the Lord is standing in the road. I just want to, I just noticed this. Okay, I'm going to highlight it in pink. All the places, they're in the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards. So we have a road, an actual, like, established uh, traveling path. We have a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on either side. And when the donkey saw the angel, she pushed against the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. What's very ironic about this is Balaam is striking his donkey for being rebellious. In his mind, he's considering her rebellious. Aren't you listening? But the real rebel is the one riding the donkey. And the donkey is the one trying to spare Balaam from going forward in rebellion. This is a, a very poetic way of explaining Who's, who's the real ass in the situation? <laughs> so the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on either side. And when the donkey saw, she pushed against the wall. So there's going to be an ouchie for Balaam. He gets an ouchie, so he struck her again. Then the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place right here. Where there was no way to turn either to the right or to the left. In other words, with each occurrence of the angel of the Lord standing in the way, okay, we see... Um, it becoming narrower and narrower until like there's nowhere to go. The Lord's got him cornered to seemingly, it seems as though the angel of the Lord with a drawn sword is going to strike Balaam down for his rebellion. Which if you read the, um, it's Deuteronomy, I believe we're, uh, the Israelite nation is, is told what to do with false prophets. You're supposed to actually like strike them. If they're leading you away from God, you're supposed to like strike them down. 
kind of the drawn sword in hand. Now, um, I need to correct something I said earlier that I just realized where we're at in the narrative. I said that up to this point, we don't have the explicit laws against divination and witchcraft. We actually do. So this is after the Exodus narrative. This is after God gives his laws to the people. So they're aware of this. At this point in the narrative, as the reader, I'm aware of what God says. At this point in human history, they're aware of what God doesn't want, which is witchcraft. And then all of a sudden, the camera pans over from Israel, and we see Balaam. We see Balaam doing divination. We see Balaam uh, doing things he shouldn't. And yet God is working within that. And so there, there is a, a tension in that. Um, Why is it that God permits, allows for such a way for for Balaam to interact with God? Why does, and we don't see this necessarily happen again. The The only other time I see this happening is with King Saul when he's trying to summon Samuel the prophet up from the dead through uh, the witch of Endor, I believe. And so either way, okay. Uh, when the donkey saw the angel, she lay down under Balaam. In other words, she's like, I'm not going forward. You don't you don't understand what's in front of us. We are going to die. <laughs> and Balaam's anger was kindled. Mm. Who's the one who has, who has, whose anger is righteous and just? Balaam's anger for the towards the donkey or God's anger towards Balaam? I think we'd all agree God's anger is always just and righteous towards those who are deserving of such. Balaam, though, he's mad that his donkey won't let him rebel. It's a story of our lives sometimes, isn't it? I get mad when God won't let me move forward in rebellion. I get mad when someone won't let me rebel and do what God said not to. I I get mad when someone doesn't just be my echo chamber and reinforce what I've already decided. And I I didn't come come to you for advice. I came to you for confirmation bias. Why are you telling me not to move forward? We get mad, don't we? Is that right? When people or God or other means prove to be protection from our own rebellion and the consequences that we're heading towards? He struck the donkey with his staff. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey. Okay? We don't see Balaam opening, or we don't see the angel of the Lord opening the eyes of Balaam yet. Before that happens, he opens the mouth of the donkey. And she said, which is odd. Again, this, this has Genesis 3 written all over it, except instead of the animal trying to usurp the authority and rebel, we see an animal here, if you think the Hebrew word there. Uh, I forget what it is. That also can be translated shining one. The word for serpent in Hebrew. If you think that's an actual snake, it's fine. But we see an animal here proving to be a help in like being a part of God's plan as opposed to being against it. She said to Balaam, what have I done to you that you've struck me these three times? Three times. And Balaam said to the donkey, because you've made a fool of me. I wish I had a sword, then I would kill you. What's ironic is, he wishes he had a sword, while the angel of the Lord standing right in front of him already has a sword drawn in hand to kill Balaam. And the donkey's trying to... So he's going, I wish I could kill you. And the donkey's going... I should have just let you go forward and I should have just ran away (laughs) so you could walk right into it. I'm trying to spare you from getting killed. And the donkey said, am I not your donkey? Let's think about this. You've ridden all your life long to this day on me. Is it my habit to treat you this way? 
Balaam is so reckless right now. He's so, um, he has such tunnel vision on, on riches and fame and influence. He's not even reasoning through the situation. He's not even taking a step back to go, this is very, this is very weird behavior. This is not normal. My donkey doesn't usually do things like this. I wonder if something is happening that I should pay attention to. Not only does he have no spiritual perception, he has no obedience. He has, seems to have no fear of the Lord, like legitimate fear of the Lord. And he seems to have no like, I don't know, just uh, awareness of what's happening around him, even with his donkey. He's not going, it's weird that you're doing this, man. What's going on? He doesn't have a, he doesn't have a picnic with his donkey to talk things out. He's going, hurry up, let's go. There's money and fame and influence on the other side of this. And the donkey's going, is it my habit to do this? He goes, no. Imagine being corrected by your donkey. The Lord opened the eyes of Balaam. Before God opens the eyes of Balaam to see what's in front of him, he opens the mouth of the donkey. I find that ironic. I find that to be a statement about how God is using a donkey more than he's using Balaam. That God has chosen to use an animal in this occasion um, because a human vessel is not fit, is rebellious, is resistant. So God chooses uh, what's around him, a donkey. And he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his sword drawn in his hand, and he bowed and fell on his face. Now what does Balaam know? He knows that all this time there was an angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, sorry, with a sword drawn in his hand. And the angel of the Lord said, why have you struck your donkey these three times? He doesn't even like gloss over it. He takes a minute to go, why'd you beat your donkey, you animal abuser? Hmm? I've come out to oppose you because your way is perverse before me. So back to the whole, did God really allow for Balaam to do this? Was God okay and just kind of made wave? No. His anger's kindled. He has the angel of the Lord with his sword drawn. And he explicitly says, your way is perverse before me. There's something about Balaam's way of life, at least at this point, that is perverted and corrupted and tainted in God's sight. The donkey saw me and turned aside before me three times. If she hadn't, I would have killed you, and I would have let her live. Then Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned. So Balaam admits, you didn't want me to go, and I went anyway. You told me not to go, and I still went. I didn't obey, I disobeyed, I rebelled. I didn't know that you stood in the road against me. Now, is Balaam talking about the fact that he went forward and he's just like, I didn't know you were in front of me and me going forward was sin? Or is he saying that my decision to come out here in the first place was sin? I think it it all comes together. It is a collective sin. Therefore, if it is evil in your sight, I will turn back. And the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, I mean, you're this far, go with Go with the men, but speak only what I will tell you. This right here, I believe, is the moment where God actually allows for Balaam to go forward. But he will not be getting what he wants. So Balaam went on with the princes of Balak. When Balak heard that Balaam had come out, he went to meet him at the city on the border. And Balak said, didn't I send you? Why didn't you come to me? Am I not able to honor you? Come on, man. I have so much for you if you just would have been here. And Balaam said, look, I've come to you. Do I have any power of my own to speak anything? 
again, this doesn't sound like a man who's going, I only want to do what God wants. This sounds like a man who says, I, I don't speak things into existence. I don't have that power. God does. This sounds like a man who wishes he could, even if it dishonored God. I'm just saying, there, there's nothing admirable or honorable about this man. The word that God puts in my mouth, that must I speak. Because he has no other power to make anything else happen. So if Balaam says, uh, God's going to curse, but God's going to bless, then Balaam loses credibility. He loses money. He loses opportunity. That's why Balaam can only do what he knows the Lord is going to do or say what he knows the Lord has said because it's his credibility that's on the line. Then Balaam went with Balak and they came to Kiriath Huzath and Balak sacrificed oxen and sheep and sent for Balaam and for the princes who were with him. And in the morning, they looked up at the people. And what you're going to see in chapter 23 and 24, which there's no way we have time. Uh, I encourage you, do your homework. Read these two chapters on your own. What you're going to see in these two chapters is that there's going to be three times where the king of Moab says, Balaam, go ask the Lord what to do if he'll bless or if he'll curse this people so that Moab wins here rather than Israel. Go ask him. Three times Balaam will go and he'll come back with the word of the Lord. And he'll even give a prophecy about the coming son of man, Jesus being the true uh, one that'll crush I guess, the head of Moab, which we see that in Genesis 3, the head-crushing son of man. So, in other words, three times the king of Moab is going to say, Balaam, go talk to God, and Balaam's going to come back with the same message three times. Which, again, there's something about this story that, that really reminds me of the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus goes three times to the Father. Father, if this is your will, if there's, if there's no other way, and if this cup cannot pass from me, then your will be done. I, I believe that while there is a connection they, these are two very different responses to the will of God. Jesus has the right response. Balaam does not. And you go, what do you mean? Balaam speaks the word of the Lord. He ends up telling the king of Moab what he needs to hear and what the Lord has said he'd do. Let's take a trip throughout scriptures to see what ends up happening after this. Because here's what's going to happen, okay? Balaam is not able to curse the people. He's going... King of Moab, my liege, I would love to help you. I can't. God has already blessed them. I can't change that reality. But what I can do is give you advice on how to make the people of Israel curse themselves. And the king of Moab goes, tell me more. What do you mean? And Balaam goes, well, God has given them statutes and rules that if they disobey, they'd bring a curse upon themselves. So if you could send women from Moab into their camps and get them to intermix and then lead them into idolatry, well, then God's protection over them from certain curses will be lifted. And then they'll bring curses upon themselves and bring themselves into consequences. So what happens is the king of Moab conspires with Balaam, which tells us what? Balaam does not care for the word of God. He doesn't care who God blesses or why God blesses or, or what God, whether God blesses or curses. He doesn't care. What he cares about is his own credibility and status and love for money and honor, and he'll get around it however he can. So if God says, I've blessed them, and Balaam turns around and goes, yeah, but I'm going to make them curse themselves, then what we have is a very, very rebellious man. Very, in fact, more rebellious than most. 
Because over and over he gets this clear word from God and each time his rebellion seems to grow. This is not a man who ever knew the Lord. This is a man who interacted with God and got messages from God but never actually truly knew God. And why God interacts with a man like this, why God chooses to use a man that has no desire to follow God, no fear of God, no obedience to God, no love for God, I couldn't tell you. I have no idea. But Israel's going to end up, you know, intermixing with the women of Moab and sleeping around and giving themselves over sexually. And then what they're going to do is turn to the gods of Moab and begin worshiping those. Ow, that hurt. So you need to pay attention to, and I already said this in the last message, there is a strong connection between false prophets, false teachers, and sexual immorality. There's a strong connection. The second thing you need to know about that is there's a strong connection between idolatry, which is spiritual adultery, and actual sexual immorality. There is a strong connection. So I want you to be thinking through your life and where in your life you see any sexual perversion, where in your life you see any, any inclination to give into sexual immorality, and, and where possibly idolatry might be connected to that. Sometimes it's that giving myself over to idolatry leads me into sexual perversion. Other times it's the other way around. It's by giving myself to sexual morality, I'm actually engaging in a form of idolatry, and I'm more prone to falling at the feet of things I shouldn't and worshiping things I shouldn't. So just be thinking through that. It's just a point of application I can't help but give you. Let me take you to New Testament. All right, let's start Old Testament, okay? What we see in Deuteronomy 23, now we're going to look at passages about Balaam and about what he does. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. Now this is in hindsight, looking back, even to the 10th generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Why? Because they didn't meet you with bread. They didn't meet you with water. And when you came out of, out of Egypt... I'm not just like waving my hands. There's a hair that keeps flying around. When you came out of Egypt, because they hired against you Balaam to curse you, that's why. But the Lord wouldn't listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord turned the curse into a blessing because he loves you. So again, this is not Balaam going, God, what is your will? God's, Balaam is going, God, curse this people, please. Please, there's incredible honor and money waiting on the other side of this for me. Can you please? How many of us use God in that way? Again, it's not your will be done. It's, Father, can you just do whatever will make me, in a worldly sense, prosper? Like, I just, I just, I'm just concerned with me. Do whatever will make me happy in me. And it's like, well, God wants to bless you, but it's not always in the way we think about real blessing. Let's explore a few more passages about this Balaam. And this is why he's the poster boy of false prophets. Like, if you were to, like, I don't know, have a false prophet club, uh, this, guy would be, this guy would be the club leader. Joshua 13, 22. Balaam, also the son of Beor, the one who practiced divination. This is when Joshua goes into Moab. Uh, they end up killing with a sword. Um, Balaam, the people of Israel, did. And so Balaam didn't end well. So we need to know that the way Balaam is described is as one who practiced divination. 
Now, again, God is explicitly, clearly against this in his law. And yet we see a man who does this, and there's something about God still moving graciously within those means, but not necessarily condoning it. This is why I think there's a very clear difference between God's permissive will and his ideal will, meaning what God actually wants and what God knows fallible, sinful human beings in the world will allow for, and God works within that. So that you're going to see a lot of, not compromise, but, um, and not even toleration. I, don't, I guess I can't think of the word, but you're going to see a lot of God using different means that in throughout the Old Testament, throughout different seasons of human history, where you and I go, that is wrong. And it's like, well, God is working with what is known at that time, and then progressively, so you're not going to see the ideal throughout Israel's nation uh, history. That's not the ideal. The ideal is Jesus. The ideal is new creation. The ideal is resurrected bodies. So along the way, it's not that God is violating his own laws. It's that God, Balaam, probably doesn't have the laws Israel does, so he doesn't know. This is what he's grown up in, in his pagan environment. So he uses what he, what all, the, what he only, uh, the only thing he knows is a way to engage with the spiritual world, and God seems to work within that graciously. Because he doesn't know, it seems, but the people of Israel do know. And I should have made that distinction at the beginning of the video. It's not that Balaam seems to know this is wrong. It's that the people of Israel know this is a law. Don't engage in divination. But we see Balaam doing it. And again, it is a the way God works with each person seems to be based on uh, their knowledge and what they have available to them. So Numbers 25, here's what I mean. Uh, while Israel lived in Shittim, the people, be careful how you say this, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. Remember how I said this is what will happen? Is Balaam will actually encourage. So two chapters later, after or one chapter later, after Balaam goes, I can't curse them, we see uh, this happen. Uh, they began to whore with the daughters of Moab. That's a very strong word. You don't use that every day, do you? Well, if you do, you should probably rethink how you're talking to people. These invited the people of the, to the sacrifices of their gods. So again, Notice the connection between sexual perversion, sexual immorality, and idolatry. There is, telling you, sexual immorality carries a deeper purpose. The enemy has a darker agenda behind sexual immorality. Of course, you dive deeper and deeper into perversion the longer you're in it, and then you end up going, how did I ever become someone that did this? But along the way, you actually end up falling into idolatry. It's directing you towards the worship of false gods through that activity. And the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Remember how the anger of the Lord was kindled against Balaam in verse in chapter 22? Right? We had God, his anger was kindled. Chapter 23, his anger was kindled against uh, Balaam. Well, now it's shifted, and his anger's kindled against Israel. That doesn't mean Balaam gets off safe. What we're going to see, like in Joshua 13, is Balaam actually gets what's coming to him. And the Lord said to Moses, each of you kill his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. So, that, so that's Balaam's role. That's the role he played in the nation of Israel, giving themselves over to false gods. He encouraged it. He schemed it. He planned it. He recommended it. Joshua 22, thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, what is this breach of faith that you've committed against the God of Israel? 
in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord. Now, this is uh, the people of Israel trying to make sense of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh on the other side of the Jordan. I, so they're um, setting up their homes and, and the rest of the nation of Israel thinks they're worshiping false gods and they're going, no, no, no. The people of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, those three tribes or two and a half tribes are going, no, we just want to have an altar to remember the Lord so we don't forget him. So they're going, look, have we not had enough of this sin? Israel's accusing them before hearing them out, right? So the other nine tribes are, are accusing these two and a half tribes of idolatry. And they're, haven't we had enough of this sin from which we haven't even cleansed ourselves yet? At Peor, from which there, was a, there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord? And if you too rebel against the Lord today, tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. So there's something about what Balaam led the people of Israel to do or schemed with the king of Moab to lead the people of Israel to do. Whatever that was, even at this point in Israel's history, after they're in the land and they've gotten their prop their their lands the allotments and they're they're filling even after this far down they're still going we still have yet to cleanse ourselves from that huh so that was a great and tragic moment in israel's history that was a huge huge failure and for balaam to instigate that it sounds a lot like, it reminds me of what Jesus says, look, if you encourage even one of these little ones of mine to sin, be better if, if, be better if I just tied a boulder around your neck, tossed you into the Nile, and you sank to the bottom. That's the idea. It'd be worse. This is worse for you than that. So what Balaam does is essentially that. That's why he dies the way he does. This is not a man that loved God. This is a man that talked to God and God talked to him and God made provision for such graciously to interact in that with this man and the only pagan methods he, he knew of to engage in the spiritual realm. God seemed to work in that which is odd and it makes us very uncomfortable, but it's in the text. Psalm 106 says, they yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor, remind, you know, recalling what happened and they ate sacrifices offered to the dead. They provoked the Lord to anger with their deeds, and a plague broke out among them. This is the psalmist recalling some of the most tragic failures on the part of Israel. So even down the line, past David, not only is the Exodus one of the biggest moments in their history where they go, God is awesome, one of the biggest moments of their failure as a nation is what Balaam instigated. He has a hand it, it's almost like Balaam left a stain, his, a stain of his own face on the nation of Israel that it's going to take them a while to recover from because even in Hosea, they're going to talk about how they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable like the things they loved, which again is a reference to that moment. 1 Corinthians 10, 8. I don't know why I have this listed. Um, this is the connection once again, or a reference. There's two things going on here I really want you to see. Number one, you're going to see a reference to that same event where a bunch were destroyed 
as they were encamped at Moab. And number two, what you're going to see is Paul is making a connection between sexual immorality and idolatry. And it's on us to be as mindful as we possibly. So many of us are like, idolatry, ugh, never, never in a million years. Well, the way God eases, or not God, <laughs> that's the opposite of what I want to say. The way the devil eases you into, or eases people into that, is through this tool called sexual immorality. You understand that sexual sin is a means to an end. Not only is the act in and of itself you know, perversion and a violation of God's law and disobedience and rebellion, but also what it leads to and what it's moving you towards becomes even, if we can say it, worse. That being idolatry. So read the text. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. 23,000 fell. Hey, real quick, don't forget to head to AboveReproachMinistry.com to check out all of our free resources. All of our Bible study courses, devotional studies, Bible study workshops, Bible study worksheets, all of my sermon notes, and more. And while you're there, grab a copy of my book, Fruitful, or snag some church merch. You can also find all these links in the video description below. I'm also very excited to announce Above Reproach Ministry Discussion Groups, or ARM Discussion Groups for short. Head to the website if you'd like to see what groups are available near you, or if you'd like to start one in your area, feel free to email me. The first season of video Video teachings have been compiled into a group study for you and other believers to dive into together. And in the months to come, I hope to have all nine seasons of these video teachings compiled into group studies for y'all to dive into together. We hope this encourages you to meet and grow with other believers to dive into the scriptures as the body of Christ. Well, that is all I have for you. Let's jump back into the message. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did. They were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did. And they were destroyed by the destroyer. These things happened as an example. And then I'll talk about temptation and how they need to flee idolatry. Hmm. One of the enemy's methods, this is just not even talking about false prophets and false teachers. One of the enemy's methods to encourage people into idolatry and to get them, I guess, softened to the idea and more open to it is through enticing and playing on their sexual desires. There's, I, and I really want you to, this is not condemning, or, this is think through just how deep and spiritually dark this goes. There's such a dark agenda behind it. Why is the enemy after our sexuality? Why is that a point of attack? Why is that such sacred ground for God? Hmm. Numbers 31. Behold these on Balaam's advice caused the... So, so you're going, when did Balaam actually encourage? Here's the explicit recalling of that event. On Balaam's advice, Balaam, they, they caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. This is Numbers 31. And the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. So who's involved in giving that advice? Imagine being so perverted and corrupted and evil that you're conspiring with the king of Moab to make an entire nation bring a plague upon themselves. Because when people disobey God and rebel against God, the hand of God's protection from certain consequences is removed. God allows for these things to come in. Revelation 2.14. Yeah, Balaam is in Revelation Yes, he is, my friends. 
Yes, he is. He says, I have a few things against you. This is the church in Pergamum. Pergamum. I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. What did Balaam do? He taught Balak, the king of Moab, to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. So they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual morality. So for those of you that are like, he's making up the connection between idolatry and sexual sin. It's, couldn't be, it couldn't be plainer than it is here. Couldn't be plainer. He wanted their, their goal was get them to worship our false gods. How? Uh, send women. Entice them. They'll be sexually drawn, engaged. And then they'll be so about satisfying those, those desires and, and all about that pleasure that they'll mindlessly give themselves over to idolatry and not think anything of, of it. Let me take you to Jude. Whoa. My mouse just did a kickflip. Tech Deck 23. Jude, there's only one chapter in Jude, so Jude 8 through 11. Uh, talking about really false prophets and false teachers of the day. Um, Verse 11 tells us, Woe to them, they walk in the way of Cain, abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perish in Korah's rebellion. So notice the people that are being compared to the false teachers of Jude's day. Cain, Balaam, and Korah. Cain, we all know, the very first murderer, at least human image bearer murderer, uh, Balaam, we know what he did. And Korah, whew, defiant, rebellious little fella. Those three. High-handed rebellion, disobedience. Balaam, the, though, is connected to um, this abandonment for the sake of gain. And this is Balaam's error. It says they've abandoned themselves for the sake of gain. To Balaam's error. In other words, as if to model or follow in Balaam's footsteps. So what's going on here? Is God against us gaining and profiting and and, and having, I don't know, any kind of fun? <laughs> I don't know. Any any pleasure? Is God against all of that? Not inherently. No. What God is against is that you would abandon yourself, meaning you abandon what is best that God calls you to, obeying him, fearing him, loving him. You abandon that for what you look at as gain. In other words, you're willing to compromise your values and your faith and your love for God to get. Get what? I don't know. Get comfort, worldly comfort. Attain some some condition of ease and relief. Money could be what you're after. Fame could be what you're after. Influence could be what you're after. Likes and follows and shares could be what you're after. If that is what you are after at the expense of loving and following God, in that moment, you might be imitating Balaam rather than Jesus. Think about it. Second Peter 2. I believe in verse 1, Balaam might be referenced. We're talking about false prophets and false teachers, okay? And, and understand, like, the ideas here is they're greedy and they exploit people with false words. 
and the example Peter's going to use of a person who exploits others with their lies in order because they're greedy for money, the example is going to be, you guessed it, Balaam. Forsaking the right way, Balaam. They've gone astray. They followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. There's a lot to break down in this text, but he was rebuked for his own transgression. How? Did God do it? No, a speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained his madness. You're supposed to see Balaam as this reckless madman, obsessed, obsessed, mindlessly obsessed with money and fame and honor and influence. And if Balaam is not an example of so many people in our culture, I don't know who is. Our culture is built on this mindless obsession and reckless pursuit of gain and fame and influence and one night uh, overnight sensations and becoming all that you're supposed to be and having a big name for yourself and having your own. Our culture is all about that. Money, influence, fame, name, be your entrepreneur, build your own, I don't know, business online. It's just all about gain. Gain, gain. And, and inherently, those things, if they're the will of God for your life, to be famous, to have a business, to be an entrepreneur, that's fine. But man, when, when your obsession and pursuit in life is just, how can I get more? You are going to find yourself slowly over time, if you don't fix it, you'll become like Balaam. You'll become reckless in your pursuits, run over anyone in your way. You'll lie to get what you want. You'll, be, you'll mindlessly not even be aware of your surroundings and situations. This is the opposite of a discerning man. Okay? So Balaam is rebuked. He had a transgression and wrongdoing. So guess what? This is, he was rebuked for his transgression. What was his sin? What was his wrongdoing? Going with the princes of Moab when God said no. He's a madman. And usually madmen have obsessions. They have one thing in mind. Their eyes are fixed on one single thing. And more often than not, it's something that they think is good for them. It's just me. Just me. And I'll hurt anyone in my way. I'll lie. I'll deceive. I'll give words in God's name that aren't even from him to build this ministry, to get, you know, to become powerful and authoritative. And I'll do it. I'll even, I'll even use pagan means. I'll engage in sorcery. I'll ask some spirit guy that's not even from God. If he'll tell me things about the future that I can make money off of, I'll do that. There are people like that. Second Peter 2.16 doesn't reference Balaam um, as a false prophet explicitly, though the surrounding context would imply that he's being lumped into this category of false prophets. It's as if he's going, I've described what a false prophet is. Now let me give you an example you're all aware of. Man. In other words, what seems to qualify someone as a false prophet most is not that they said something wrong on accident, speaking on behalf of God, teaching through the scriptures. Some of you are like waiting in the bushes for someone to say something wrong when they're teaching through scriptures. 
Your goal is to correct someone at least five times in a Bible study. It's a weird goal to have. It's pretty sick and twisted. Your goal is to like, when you join discussion groups and Bible studies, you're not even listening to what people are really saying. You'd rather paint this caricature of someone so you can attack what they're not even saying and make other, and there's just so much of these attacks that we bring against false prophets and false teachers. I'm just correcting a brother, man. I'm just trying to make sure they're not going down a dark way. You're trying to capitalize on someone else's micro failure and you're magnifying the speck in their eye, ignoring the plank in yours to make yourself seem bigger and smarter and more religious and spiritual. And if your ministry and if your main, if the bulk of your interactions with people is correcting what they say wrong, and you don't even try to understand where they're coming from. You don't even, you're just attacking. Just let me fix that actually. Actually in the Hebrew, let me fix that actually. When you read the narrative, and I'm all for like correcting and saying actually, but not everything someone says wrong or does wrong needs your personal correction publicly or even privately or at all. So be very careful. Because this is all about hearing the voice of God, this series. And we have a man here. I want you to think about this. This will blow your categories out of the water. If you think that a false prophet or false teacher is someone who doesn't hear from God, you're not reading the, you're not reading the scriptures. Here we have a man who legitimately heard from God several times, a lot. What made him a false prophet was his disobedience and disregard for what God was saying to him. So let me say it like this. Technically, every time someone shares a scripture with us where we read a scripture or I hear or um, I'm listening to the scriptures. Anytime the scriptures are being, I'm interacting with the scriptures, God is speaking to me. And I'll tell you, there are millions of unbelievers around the world right now that are hearing from God through the scriptures being read to them in church service, reading the scriptures on billboards, hearing the scriptures in a video, and they're disregarding and disobeying. Now, that doesn't make them a false prophet. What that makes them is just an unbeliever. But when someone claims to speak for God or says they know things about God and you should come and learn from them, and I'm going to teach you about the Bible, but they disregard God's word and they disobey God's word and they don't concern themselves with God's will and they don't fear or love him, you have found yourself a false prophet. Because we have this category in mind where it's like a false prophet or false teacher is someone who never hears from God. Really? Why do unbelievers all over the world right now, every day, hear from God through the spoken or written word? So that's a silly conclusion to come to. But besides that, someone say a false prophet or false teacher is someone who, or a false prophet is someone who never gets a prophecy right. Like they just, they say something's going to happen and it doesn't. They say, God said this is going to happen. It doesn't. Actually, what you're going to see in Deuteronomy. Actually, I really want to save this. Um, I'll give you another example of a false prophet later. I just want to make sure I paste it in the right area. I think it's right here. You know, you'll see Simon the Sorcerer. You'll see another man, uh, Simon Bar-Jesus. Those aren't the same people, I don't believe. Um, but let me take you to this, okay? 
the question becomes, okay, I know how to recognize false prophets, I think. They're usually characterized by a love for money. And I can't always know someone loves money. That's a heart issue that only God can usually see. But sometimes you can gauge that and go, they love money. Oh my gosh, it's very obvious. I won't name any names, but they love money. Uh, They're characterized by uh, sexual perversion and sexual immorality. Uh, They're characterized by um, this, they have no concern for God's word or his will. They have no desire to do what God says or teach his word accurately. Um, Around them, the people learning from them are people that are living in sin, like their teaching or prophecies are encouraging people to live in sin. So what you have is their followers are pretty worldly, pretty ungodly, pretty fleshly, um, okay with sin. You know, so you'll see the kind of people that are looking to them and following them um, also seem to share similar traits. So there's a lot of ways to go, okay, I need to know whether someone's a false prophet or false teacher. I've just given you a few things to consider. Just a few things. And mainly, I should have started with this, their confession about Jesus is the first thing I should look at and say, you know, what do they say the gospel is? What do they say Christ has done? Who do they say Jesus is? This is why Jesus says to his disciples, who do you say that I am? I don't care who other people say. I don't want to hear it. I don't, I don't want to hear what MySpace is saying to bring it back to 2004. I want to know what you guys say. Who do you say that I am? And they go to the Christ. That is the most important thing we can ask. Then from there, we can go, okay, is this a person who loves money? They, they're greedy. They exploit people. They're lying. They're intentionally deceitful. They don't concern. They don't care what God says. They don't care to obey him. Their life is characterized by sin and, and sexual perversion and immorality. And, and the people around them seem to have that. Then you can begin to look at those things. The last question we'll tackle today. And then Monday, we have to save the last part of this for another message. I know you guys love that. We're going to talk about what do we do with false prophets and false teachers as we're trying to hear the voice of God and as we're trying to listen to God and have his spirit lead our life. What do we personally do uh, with false prophets and, and false teachers? Just type in something before I forget. Um, that will be for Monday. That will be for Monday. But the last question we need to answer is today. Uh, what do... Rather, why does God allow false prophets to exist? Like, what's his purpose? If you were to look at the all-powerful, um, sovereign, eternally existent God of creation and go, man, Lord, I know the parable of the, 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 the weeds says that you allow the tares to grow up with the wheat or you allow the weeds to grow up with the wheat. Why? 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 When, when Paul tells the Ephesian elders, you're not going to see me again. And, he go, and then Paul looks at the Ephesian elders and he goes, some within your own rank are going to rise up and deceive many and become false prophets. Why, why does God allow that? If he could just spare us from the deception, shouldn't he? Shouldn't he make it easier rather than more complicated? Like if I'm trying to learn from God and then you have all these other false prophets and false teachers on YouTube claiming to speak for God and, and I have to discern through that, why not make it easier on us? Deuteronomy 13.3. Let's just read it. Okay, well, I'll back it up to verse 1. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams rises among you 
and gives you a sign or wonder. <gasps> and the sign or wonder comes to pass. And you're going, that's a true prophet. That's a true teacher of God's word. Amen. Hold on. And if he says, let's go after other gods, you go, oh, cut the music. If they're telling us to go after other gods and serve them, that's a false prophet or false teacher. So guess what false prophets and false teachers can do? They can give you legitimate signs or wonders that even come to pass. They can predict the future accurately. But if they say, so let's not worship the Lord, let's not obey the scriptures, let's not follow Jesus, you go, ah, okay, false prophet. Don't listen to the words of the prophet or that dreamer of dreams. Watch, watch. For the Lord, your God, is testing you. Not to find out something he doesn't know, but to allow you to reveal your own dedication and loyalty to God by knowing they're false prophets, they're false teachers, what does God say? Mark, avoid them, disregard them. If your Old Testament actually says something else, we'll talk about that next next message. So I'm going to disregard that and do what the Father says. And that reveals a great love for God. That reveals loyalty and dedication to him. So what the Lord is testing his people in, and I don't believe this changes, because some of you might go, well, he's talking to the nation of Israel, brother. He's talking to the Old Testament saints. Not even saints. He's talking about, you know, um, he's talking to the nation of Israel under the Old Covenant. This isn't for us. So there aren't false prophets and false teachers that exist in our day that do same things. Psychics, tarot card readers, uh, necromancers, I mean, people who are like legitimately pro- like declaring what's going to happen in the future and actually happens. You don't have that? There is legitimate spirit, dark spiritual powers that um, empower humans to do some pretty evil things. So if you're saying this is only for Old Testament nation of Israel, brother, well then, what do we do? <laughs> because we have the same things happening in our world. You think God is actually testing his people still, or is that only them? I don't know how you could conclude that God's only testing them. God doesn't test us. No, God doesn't tempt. God doesn't tempt. Nor can he be tempted. But the testing aspect of God's will for your life is unavoidable. And you have to understand that part of the way God tests, or rather, this isn't to like figure out who's a sheep, who's a goat, who loves me, who doesn't. This is allow you, this is to allow you to step into the more God has for you by remaining obedient in the midst of these lying voices. So deceitful voices are going to come into your life. Your flesh, the world, people who claim to be from God but they're not, you know, people who are unbelievers, they're all around us in the media and the entertainment, what we watch, what we listen to, what I think, what I dream, all these lying voices all around me. So why the wolves in sheep's clothing? Part of the reason is because God is allowing his people to reveal their love for him by resisting the voice of the strangers and not believing the lies because they're committed and loyal to their father. To love God means there is the opportunity and the temptation to not love him. And I still choose to love and obey him anyway. Love is a free will choice in the midst of other options. So it's not programmed. It's not within our DNA to just, this is just biochemical. You make a choice to love God. And the other options you're being presented on a silver platter 
called deception and lies and false teachers and false dreams, all those things that are being presented to you as you discern, as you seek the Father, as you ask for clarity, and as you come to conclude that's not from God and you resist it, you're revealing a great love and dedication to God. And also, God intends to reward you for such. So it's not just to test in order to expose. It's test. It's to test you with the intention of rewarding. Isaiah 38 through 14 says, Write it before them on a tablet. Inscribe it in a book that it may be for the time to come as a witness forever. Talking about the northern kingdom of Israel here. They are a rebellious people, lying children. They're children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord. They say to the seers, don't see. And to the prophets, don't prophesy what is right. So the people of Israel in Isaiah's day are looking at true prophets of God and true seers and going, stop. Don't tell us what is right. Don't tell us what you've actually seen as truth. Tell us smooth things. Give us some smooth jazz. Prophesy illusions. They've decided what they're going to listen to. Like a lot of people have pre-decided what they're going to entertain and listen to. And when the truth comes, it doesn't fit their narrative and their preference. So they go, I've decided I don't want to regard that. So thanks, but no thanks. Leave the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. This is the state of the northern kingdom at this point. Okay. Very important that you know that. Therefore, here's what God, the Holy One of Israel says. Because you despise this word and you trust in oppression and perverseness and rely on them, therefore this iniquity shall be to you like a breach in a high wall, like a violation of your protection, bulging out and about to collapse, whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant, and this breaking is like that of a potter's vessel, smashed so ruthlessly that among its fragments, not a shard is found. I definitely could not say that word around my son. With which to take fire from the hearth or to dip up water out of the cistern. And you go, quite the poetic image. God says his people don't want to hear the word of the Lord. They don't want the Lord. So they reject the true prophets, the true seers, and the true word of God for what is false. Which again, in order for God's people to listen to him, there is going to be in this broken, sinful world, there's going to be the presence of lies and deception along with it. So it requires discernment. It requires prayerful consideration. It requires us to seek God in prayer and fasting and getting godly counsel and opening the scriptures and using logos. Because I'm, I'm just so excited to use that after this, to be honest. I'm like... We're almost done. I get to open logos. I get to read the Bible. Uh, not that we're not reading the Bible now, but I, my personal study is fantastic lately. I encourage you guys to read your Bibles, man. Isaiah 29, um, 10 through 14 is another reason. I know this frustrates some of you guys' theology where you're like, God is good. God being good allows for the opportunity for his people to choose him, which involves options that are contrary to his will. Isaiah 29 says, The Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep. He's closed your eyes, the prophets. He's covered your heads, the seers. And the vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. 
When men give it to one who can't, who can read, saying, read this, he says, I can't. It's closed up. Think about the sealed scroll in Revelation. And when they give the book to the one who can't read, saying, read it, they say, I, I can't read. So no matter what, people who can and can't read aren't able to perceive what's in the book or in the scroll. And the Lord said, because this people draw near with their lips or mouth and, and they honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. And their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. In other words, their fear of God is nothing more than something they do to just listen to people so they stop telling them. Sounds like my son. <laughs> Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. This goes to 1 Corinthians 2, 1 Corinthians 1. God actually withholds true visions, true prophets, and true words um, for a season as judgment against people. So if God withholds for a season against a certain people, if he withholds true visions, true prophets, true seers, true dreams, then what's left for them? What's left is nothing but lies, deception, and delusion, which the people already decided that's what we want. We don't want truth. We don't want obedience. We don't want scripture. Take that away. Well, God takes that away, but it's not a reward it's not good. It's actually judgment. And also, the reason God allows false prophets and false teachers to exist is so that, I mean, oddly enough, it's, it is that God wants all people to be saved. So we hold that in one hand. But in the other hand, those who stay in rebellion and unbelief and intentionally live their life as false teachers and false prophets, God has ordained that those unbelieving false teachers and prophets are going to be objects of destruction. Meaning, he's going to overthrow whatever wisdom they threw out into the world and whatever dreams they had. God allows that to exist in order to amount to nothing. So it magnifies God's glory in that it proves to be nothing of value. It's kind of like what God or a the elders of Israel or Jerusalem at the time that, you know, Jesus resurrected. He's, he's at the right hand of the father. The apostles are preaching the gospel and the, um, the elders and the scribes, they bring in the apostles and say, stop, stop preaching this Jesus. Stop it. And they go, we can't. And then, and then the elders and scribes are, you know, conversing about what to do. And they're going, I forget who it is that stands up, but he goes, look, I think it's, um, uh, Gamaliel. Uh, Paul's mentor. I think Gamaliel stands up and goes, look guys, if this is of God, you can't stop it. If it's not from God, it'll amount to nothing and it will be proven as such. And then God is magnified in that. That's the idea. Is that you have false teachers and false prophets doing their false counterfeit things so that not just on the day of judgment, but throughout their life, all the stuff they say and do amounts to nothing and actually like lends credence to the truth. I guess the psychics weren't doing what you thought. I guess the, the, the seers and diviners weren't giving you what you wanted and what you actually needed. And now you're like, well, I, I guess God's word is something I should consider. Yeah, yeah, you should, huh? Second Thessalonians 2.11. It says, God sends a strong delusion, not just in general, but to a certain people. Watch. It says, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. 
and everyone wants to make this eschatological in their own framework and not for today. With all power and false signs and wonders, with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and be saved. Why are people perishing? They refuse to love the truth. They don't want to be saved. They hate God and his word. So what does God do in response, kind of like we see in Romans chapter 1, is part of their judgment, part of what reinforces what they've already decided and chosen, which is death and destruction, part of that is God sends a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. Just like the people in Isaiah's day, going, tell us lies, tell us lies, come on, tell us lies. Lying dreams, lying visions, more, more, more. And they're just more lies, deception, delusion, truth, God's word, lies. That's what they want, right? So God goes, okay, that's what you get as judgment and as what reinforces your decision to already hate and refuse the truth. And you guys thought God wanted all people to be saved. He does. But there are people who have decided Within themselves, there is nothing, and I mean nothing, that will ever change the fact that I hate God, I rebel against His word, His truth, no amount of evidence can convince me or sway me or change my mind, my loyalty lies with me and sin and the devil, and I'm never changing. And part of the judgment against them is that that God sends more of what they only want to hear and believe, delusion, lies, in order they may be condemned for not believing the truth, but having pleasure in unrighteousness. This is not, these are not people who are like, we're so powerless, we want the truth, oh, there's only lies everywhere we look. These are people who are like, I don't want truth, I don't care if it's factual or logical, I don't care if it matches with history, tell me what reinforces a life of sin, tell me what encourages me to live in darkness, tell me what, like just, Live in my echo chamber and just give me the confirmation bias I'm looking for. Part of their judgment is that they live with more and more delusion and God gives them what they want. You think God giving you what you want is always a good thing? Ain't no way. If half the things you want that you think are good, if you looked at it from God's vantage point, you'd realize I should not want this and I should stop asking God for it. Not everything that God allows people to have after them asking for it is good. Case in point, Israel in the wilderness saying, give us meat. While it's in between their teeth, disease breaks out. Hmm? So why does God allow false prophets and false teachers to exist like Balaam? The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, as if that's not already here. (laughs) But having itching ears, meaning my ears want to hear something, and there's only one thing that will really scratch that itch. So I'm going to go and find people to tell me what I want them to. Not what I need to hear, not what God wants me to hear, what I want to hear. And because they have itching ears, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Meaning, guess what? Once again, we have this truth. False teachers and false prophets encourage sinful passion. 
whether they cloak it in grace, whether they uh, masquerade it as forgiveness, and God's going to forgive everyone. I'm a universalist. People who have, who follow teachers and preachers and prophets that leave them being okay with sin after listening to them should not listen to those people anymore. If you listen to a message from a prophet, from a teacher, a preacher, or you watch their YouTube channel, and every time you're done listening, you're more encouraged to live in sin. You, you feel more justified in doing wrong. You should probably change teachers or prophets. Just saying. Because apparently, I have passions. My, my flesh has passions. And some of y'all... At times, sometimes me, we will look for teachers and preachers that will encourage and reinforce and applaud those passions. And you're going, oh, fleshly passions, never me. How about the selfish ambition within you to be self-preserving and never look beyond your own life into the lives of others? How about your, in, your, your tendency to gossip? Every time you get around certain people, you just got to talk about what's going wrong in your neighbor's lives and your husband and, and you just can't. What about the things that, the, the, the ambition within you, you call it godly ambition, but it's actually like self ambition. I want money. I want fame. I want influence. We look for teachers and preachers sometimes that will just encourage those passions that God is saying to actually let those die down. Don't give into those passions. So how can I not give in to the passions that I'm encouraging through false teaching and false prophecies? That's why they look for teachers that suit their passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. God allows these to exist for a time as judgment, as reinforcement, as an opportunity to choose the truth, as, as an opportunity for God to like bring them to nothing so that he's magnified and glorified. I'll bring you to one more passage. And this is really what we're... I mean, why did God allow Pharaoh to have, you know, magicians that could counterfeit Moses' signs up to a point? Why? Same reason. John 10, 5 says, A stranger, the sheep follow Jesus, the good shepherd, they know his voice. A stranger, they will not follow. They will flee from him, run. The only way you're able to run from a stranger is that you recognize he's a strange voice or she's a strange voice. And therefore, it doesn't sound like my father, so I'm going to run. But if you don't know the father's heart and his voice in his word, you won't be able to recognize a stranger for what they are. For they don't know the voice of strangers. Why does God allow strangers near the sheepfold? Why does God allow these things to persist in church communities? Why is God sovereignly ordaining this? Makes no sense. All the different reasons I've listed. So that you're almost forced, but not necessarily forced, so that you're encouraged to seek the voice and the heart of your Father daily to safeguard you from the voice of strangers. It's as if the presence of strangers increases my need to listen and become familiar with the heart and the voice of God. So there's a real danger in churches 
It's a real danger in the world. There are Balaams walking around the face of this earth right now. That should encourage you and motivate you to be more urgent about seeking God in his word and becoming more familiar with his voice. Not just so that you can recognize and run from strangers, but so that you can protect and safeguard other believers from strangers as well. So I can be a use and a help to my brothers and sisters that are maybe not as mature and not as discerning, and I can be the protection that Cain should have been to Abel, but he said instead, am I my brother's keeper? Well, in our day and age, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we are each other's keepers. Hey, I just want to thank you for all your support and prayers that make this ministry possible and help us to accomplish our mission. Your support makes it possible for us to create all the free resources we have available for anyone around the world. Our mission is to teach people how to read the Bible so they can live and teach the Bible themselves. So be sure to visit abovereproachministry.com for all these free resources and to support this ministry. And if you're a new believer, be sure to check out the new believer section on the homepage of our website and grab a copy of my book, Fruitful, while you're there. God bless you guys. And as always, keep moving towards Jesus.